Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get to a NASDAQ guest. Lauren Dillard joins us now. She's head of intelligence, investment intelligence at, at NASDAQ, where she's an executive vice president. And, and Lauren, you've got a lot of great experience, including um, working at the Carlyle Group. But, you know, the, the, the NASDAQ name jumped out at me today because of um, the rotation that we've been seeing lately and then the huge jump today. Do you have any thoughts on value versus growth, NASDAQ versus Dow, um, tech versus old economy? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I um, am a Peloton user, and they joined the NASDAQ 100 <laughs> at the end of last year. So let's make sure we, we speak to that first. Um, look, I think a couple of things. Um, what you're certainly seeing are investors expressing you know, concerns around rates, um, frankly, some uncertainty and moving maybe into more cyclical sectors that were out of favor. If you look back to March of last year, um, the NASDAQ composite has almost doubled. So um, that was certainly an expression of a belief in what we would call the, you know, the digital economy that people certainly believe the NASDAQ 100 represents. Um, we saw close to $23 billion of inflows. But I think what you're seeing now is, is a broadening expression with some of the uncertainty that's going on. So, Lauren, one of the things we've really seen over the last 12 months that's really been fascinating has been the really the surge in SPACs. Um, they you know, started out with a trickle, and we've seen SPACs over the years, but it's been really a small part of the market. It's just exploded over the last 12 months. What do you make at it from your perspective at the NASDAQ? Yeah, um, you are exactly right. I think in 2014, we had a stat that they counted for about 3% of the deals. And year to date in 2021, we have welcomed 146 back wow. onto the NASDAQ. So um, it's definitely a, a, you know, a significant way that um, people are accessing the public markets. I mean, as a market provider, I think you know, we saw several years, and this dates back, of course, to, to my time at the Carlisle Group, where companies were staying private longer. Um, they were in the hands of private investors, and that was certainly a, a, a trend we were seeing. Now you're seeing companies accessing the public markets, whether it's via IPOs, whether it's via direct listings, and then, of course, SPAC. I think, of course, there's an important sort of education um, market understanding uh, underpinning that, that is there. But um, I, I actually believe, if you think about value creation um, for companies, that accessing the public markets and allowing those companies to be in the hands of investors during more of the value creation yeah. is, is, is a long-term a good thing. Now, I think it's, theoretically, to me, it's so cool because it's like the democratization of um, earlier stage investing or it, someone called it a poor man's um, PE. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to get into a private equity deal. I'm not a sophisticated investor. So I, I think it'd be sweet to take a shot at a couple hundred dollars of a SPAC. The thing is... Um, it's it's gone beyond haywire at this point. I mean, there's a company called Just Another Acquisition Corp. <laughs> um, the the numbers that you named already, Laura, Lauren, are are huge. And you know, CCIV, for example, trading at like seventy dollars um, for a while, and then drop like sixty percent if the deal was announced with Lucid. 
isn't this a problem for retail investors? I mean, aren't they getting in a little too deep? I mean, I, I think it goes back to market education. It will be interesting to see what our regulators decide to look at. They're obviously looking at some of the trends going on with lit markets, um, with intelligent ticks, if you want to get into some of the market structure. So, you know, the regulators will have to decide where to look. Again, um, I think you're probably right. There's a fine line between accessing the public market, which is a good thing. I mean, our whole belief at NASDAQ is championing inclusive growth and prosperity. So it aligns with market access and it aligns with getting value creation into the hands of investors. But um, they are they are riskier and people have to understand their rights. Lauren, what's the outlook for IPOs uh, in 2021? It looks like, um, you know, the stock market's at or near all-time highs. Seems, and we have an economy reopening. Seems like conditions look pretty good. Yeah, the um, the pipeline is incredibly strong, um, and already, frankly, has we've seen more companies. Um, I think it's 148, and I'm quoting that number. Um, access actually the public the public markets year to date. So it's we've already are seeing that. I think that's a good thing. Again, going back to investors, um, and and certainly you would argue the window is open, and we still have a strong pipeline. Um, I just want to quickly ask you about trading. What are, what are your thoughts on the whole um, pay for order flow situation? Since we're talking about this already, uh, might as well get get into it. Um, you're a market provider. This touches obviously everything that you do. Um, does does that worry you, or do you think we're going to be able to find a decent solution to it? So, I mean, as a capital markets operator, we believe obviously in fair and open markets and for all market participants. So we have been saying that the rise of the retail investor participating in our markets is is a good thing. Um, and it's certainly reflected in, um, in the numbers we've seen. And frankly, in a time, if you look back from a year from now, the volumes of, that have that have transacted on the markets between equities and options is extraordinary. And we as a market provider are very frankly, proud of that resiliency. Um, it's something we've invested in. As you look forward for retail for retail trading and the discussions that the, the SEC and FINRA are looking at, you know, we've engaged with our regulators for close to two decades on, you know, very arguably esoteric, but really important market structure concepts. Having lit markets, having price discovery, um, we're obviously subject to regulatory oversight, um, intelligent ticks, you heard in the SEC discussion uh, discussions around tick sizes, um, and all of that is with with the lens of making you know price discovery, financial markets serve all investors, including retail investors. So, without getting into the nuances of payment for order flows, I think broadly speaking, we as a capital markets provider want there to be fair and transparent markets. We would like these investors to stay in the market long term. I think that's very important to us. Hey, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We always like speaking to smart people that come out of the yeah. Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. My hmm. alum, I'm an alumnus there, so it's great to speak with you, Lauren. Lauren is the EVP, Head of Investment Intelligence at the NASDAQ. Prior well, to that, she cool, was at the Carlisle Group. What What's a cool that? title. What a cool, I mean, what uh, that's an awesome title. I'd love to have that yes. title. But also, what a cool career. I mean, she managed more than $30 billion dollars in assets across six international offices at the Carlyle Group, which is already an incredible name. And then moving on to NASDAQ, which is kind of the, 
you know, the the modern story of sure. uh, equity markets. I mean, the old stuff is like old. And, you know, I was talking about the Dow Jones Industrial Index earlier. The kids don't even don't even talk about that. Well, John Farrow. Yeah, you can't talk about you can't quote the Dow Jones Industrials to John Farrow. He gets all upset. So we'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. All right, Matt Miller, I'm going to tell you one of my bucket list items, which you probably wouldn't guess, and that is to take a trip on one of those big ocean-going cargo ships, you know, the ones you see out there on the ocean with the container ships stacked like 20 high. I have no idea how those things float, how they don't tip over, how the cargo doesn't fall into the sea, but maybe our next guest can help me hitch a ride there. Gary Vogel, CEO and director of Eagle Bulk Shipping. They're based in Stanford, Connecticut. Boy, it's a public company trades on the NASDAQ under the symbol EGLE. The stocks had a great run as the economy start to open up, up 86% year to date, up 111% over the trailing 12 months. Gary, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, when we talk to you, Gary, we get a great, great bird's eye view uh, of the global economy. What can you tell us about global shipping and what that's what that's telling you about the, the global reopening? Yeah, well, as you said, it's it's really is about this um, this reopening. I mean, 2020 was severely impacted. It was a tale of two halves, the first half of the year, a real um, a real demand shock. Uh, you know, dry bulk is highly correlated to global GDP. We actually don't carry containers. Our ships carry, you know, bulk cargoes, uh, commodities such as grain, minerals, cement, and fertilizer, but but really, you know, building building products, if you will, for the global economy. And so, but what we've seen is by the fourth quarter, um, a real return in many many of our commodities to pre-COVID levels, and uh, that's that's also continued to into the first quarter, and that's also on the back of what's been fairly uh, muted supply growth as well on terms of ships. So, but these are ships that I mean, you send them a long way, right? They go all the way around the world. Um, not just like from uh, Charlotte to I don't know New Absolutely. Jersey, right? Absolutely. Uh, do, do you ever have stowaways, or do you? Is there a way for uh, Paul to to just buy a ticket and take a ride from like the Horn of Africa to <laughs> I don't know um, uh, Australia? Is that is that a possibility? Well, we, we don't we don't take passengers. Uh, there there. On occasion, there are issues with stowaways, but but the industry deals with that. But we don't take passengers on board our ships. No, <laughs> so, sorry about that, Gary. You know, one of the things we've seen, uh, and again, I'm I'm really fascinated by the global shipping business and, and the big ships that you guys operate. Uh, but I've seen you know a lot of stories over the past a month or two about ships having a hard time unloading their goods in various ports around the world. Perhaps due in part to, you know, there just aren't enough workers there, maybe due to COVID, to to you know unload things and load things. And what are you finding in that regard? Yeah, I think what you're speaking to again is is uh, the headline's been about the container industry and 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 significant congestion. You know, fortunately, dry bulk we go to different terminals, okay. and notwithstanding certain areas of congestion in general. Um, the trade flows have been fairly normal, and so we've been able to to meet demand, increase demand, and 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 get cargoes on and off ships now, with the exception really of the second quarter into the third quarter of last year, as as countries you know send people home to stop the spread of COVID-19. But we're really uh, operating you know quite efficiently now. You know one of the one of the challenges last year, which if I can take a moment, was the humanitarian crisis of trying to repatriate our seafarers, our crew on board right. the ship. 
we typically work about six months. And as countries enacted these tra- travel restrictions, excuse me, um, sh- you know, these people were unable to get home. And, and so there's been a real push uh, within the industry. We were fortunately able to, to you know, um, return to normal by, by November, and the industry is focused on it now to ensure that doesn't happen again. But that was probably the biggest challenge we faced as an industry last year. Terrifying. Actually, there's a Bloomberg Businessweek story about not uh, shipping employees, but cruise employees that uh, faced right. really traumatic conditions. Um, glad that's over for for your people, Gary, and that the um, that the industry is, seems so healthy right now. I wonder what the biggest concern is going forward. What, what are the headwinds, so to speak? There's literally no pun intended, but uh, is, is fueling an issue? Is the greening of the earth a problem or is the way you can is there a, a good way you can work with that? Yeah, so a few things to unpack there. One is, um, you know, that the the you know challenge for for shipping rates historically has been an oversupply of of tonnage. Um, in fact, dry bulk demand has grown in 18 of the last 20 years. The, the two outliers being the financial crisis and last year COVID. So we haven't had a demand issue. It's really, as I mentioned, linked to global GDP growth. So supply, we've had an oversupply, but at the moment supply of ships is actually at a 25-year low at just 6% of the of the on-the-water fleet. So I think that bodes very well as you have you know demand and GDP growth coming back with a limited amount of ship supply coming in. And you mentioned the greening. I mean, you know, emissions uh, reduction and, and decarbonization is on the forefront of all the discussions within shipping, and, and, and dry bulk is no exception. And, and at, at as we are looking towards zero emission vessels to get to the IMO targets of a reduction of 50% by 2050. And so because of that uncertainty about what future regulations will mean is also, a, 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 you know, a, a reduction of ordering because of that uncertainty, right? It's, it's an impediment to ordering mm. because you simply don't know how long the vessel you order today will actually be allowed to trade due to uh, emissions regulations. All right. It's really interesting. And we could do a That's another thing we could do a whole show on right now. I, I know. Talk to Soren Sko, I talk to a lot um, up here, uh, well, up in Copenhagen, and he talks a lot about the fuel issue as well. Gary, it's been great to have you on the program. Thanks very much. It's a bummer that you don't even let a few people travel as passengers, because I know, <laughs> yeah. Paul, it's not just your dream. I a know. lot of people want to get on a shipping uh, a container ship or a dry goods ship and, and take a long trip. Maybe as a stowaway, it's a little bit easier. Gary Vogel there from Eagle Bulk Shipping. Let's get back to the markets, because, of course, Greg was talking about the rally that we're seeing in equities and not the chicken sandwich maker. David Dietz joins us right now. He is managing principal and senior portfolio strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management. David, um, I I wonder when I look at this, and I've been asking all of our guests today, um, is the rotation that we saw kind of a surprise rotation over from um, from growth to value as we see the NASDAQ today rally and the Dow um, not doing nearly as well? Well, certainly um, what's been driving the tune here is this rapid rise in interest rates from the start of the year with the 10-year Treasury below 1%, got up uh, close to about 1.6%, and that did feed this huge rotation into stocks that will do well with the economic reopening. Um, banks, of course, can loan money at higher rates. Uh, some of this uh, uptick in interest rates is due to inflationary fears, and so commodities, energy, industrials doing well. And, of course, they rotated out of 
the Nasdaq hit but David, territory yesterday. D- David, today, of course, it's going the other way around. D- David, doesn't that march higher for rates? Doesn't it have a lot further to go? I mean, I've talked to a few people who are real outliers. Scott Minard, for example, thinks the tenure could go negative. But most other people are saying, look, with the incredible growth ahead of us, Bloomberg Economics um, uh, did a survey uh, and found a 7.6% expectation in nominal GDP growth, then rates have to keep going higher from here. You know, I tell my clients, I said, there's only one thing more difficult than predicting the direction of the stock market, and that's predicting the direction of interest rates. But I'll tell you this, if the vaccine rollout continues to march along well, if the stimulus is well distributed and we see another infrastructure bill coming down the pike, if um, the Federal Reserve does not try and somehow cap the rise in interest rates, if consumer confidence continues to go in the right direction, I do think there will be a normalization of the economy. That will mean a normalization of interest rates. Remember, in 2019, interest rates ranged between 2.8 and 1.8. Why wouldn't they go back to those levels? So I, I, I think that's the, the path of least resistance. All right. Given that bullish background, David, what are some of the names you like right here that you guys are working on? Yeah, absolutely. So you got to stay with tech. We got the long-term themes, um, uh, tailwinds for increased use of technology. We've heard about the chip shortage, so I want to go with the number one chip producer in the world, which is Intel. And what I like about Intel, it has a cyclical twist to it because it's a chip manufacturer. It also has a value twist to it because of its well valuation. You've got a two, almost 2.5% dividend. You're trading about 12 times earnings. It's the largest in the world. And also it allows you for participation in, uh, for example, artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, uh, the movement to the cloud. And so you kind of have your best of both worlds. You've got the tech exposure, plus you've got your, your, your value uh, exposure, which I think it's going to do well this year. I think I heard you mention the word infrastructure. And for me, this is one of the most exciting things about the not too distant future. We all know the $2 trillion fiscal stimulus package is going to be uh, we're, we're likely to see it pass in the next few days. But for me, even more exciting is thinking about what President Biden will do in terms of stimulus spending or infrastructure spending. What do you expect there? So, you know, I, I think that, the, you know, once they notch this early win in the Biden administration under their belt with the uh, near two trillion uh, regular stimulus, I think they are going to push ahead and get something in infrastructure. What I think is going to be interesting here is it's not just going to be bridges, tunnels and roads. I think it's also going to include, um, you know, expansion of the Internet to those who have less access to it. So my stock for my clients here for that is Verizon. Now, Verizon is a stock that still hasn't come back to where it was in the late 1990s. But if you're talking about 5G, Verizon is your play. They've just spent big time to get more spectrum. Um, They are by far the best wireless service out there. And so I think that you know, uh, with your 4.5% dividend, about 12 times earnings horizon is a low-risk way to play expansion of the Internet that could be fueled by an infrastructure package. Hey, Jim, about 30 seconds. I know Pfizer's on your list. Has this been a, a pre-pandemic play or is, or is this your play on uh, their, their uh, vaccine? 
Yeah, you know, I think it's both. So the stock ran up to about 43 on the excitement of being the first to get the emergency use authorization from the FDA up to, and now it's back down to 34. Why is that? Because there's two reasons. One is if we have this big economic expansion, what does that do to healthcare? Do people use more drugs? Probably not. Second, there is still concern as to whether heavy-handed legislation comes out of Washington. But I think that's well priced into the stock. Remember, healthcare is the other growth sector. You got about a four and a half percent dividend on Pfizer, about 13, 14 times earnings, the best R&D pipeline, and also great exposure overseas who want the same kind of deluxe healthcare that we have. So I think this is a, a, a nice way to uh, participate in continued growth in the stock market without taking a whole lot of risk. Hey, David, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. As always, nobody pitches a name better than David Dietz. He gets it all out there in 20 to 30 seconds. Nobody does it better. David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management in lovely Summit, New Jersey. Let's take a look at the auto business, Matt. I know you're a big, big auto fan gearhead. Let's take a look at the car parts business. There's nobody better to do that with than Lev Peeker. He's the CEO of CarParts.com. Lev, thanks so much for joining us here. We're, Matt and I were just looking at the five-year chart for your stock. Again, the symbol is PRTS. It trades on NASDAQ. It was kind of just you know almost a penny stock there for we're looking at the five-year chart until you know kind of uh, you know kind of March of last year, and then it just exploded. Is this a pandemic play? Is that what your stock has become? Yeah, that's a common misconception. I think, you know, the business uh, wasn't really going anywhere for a long time. Um, you know, the company's been uh, public since 2008, uh, didn't really grow for 12 years, and then uh, an entirely new management team came in. Um, I started in January of 2019, and uh, we executed a, a great turnaround plan, uh, focusing on solving a customer problem. And uh, last quarter alone, we grew 90%. Uh, for the full year, we grew 58% to $450 million. And so, you know, we're, we're executing really well. I'm really proud of the way uh, the team is executing right now and uh, way, way beyond the pandemic now. But, I mean, it can't be just a coincidence that your stock is trading for, like, two or three bucks for four years. I mean, it's fair to say that you executed on a plan to even double revenue, but... In March of 2020, you go from like a dollar 37 to uh, more than twenty dollars a share. Um, that's got to be more have more to do with something else than just doubling revenue, right? I mean, what's your outlook? Yeah, so we just released a long-term model, um, and what we believe is that we can grow at a 20 to 25 percent Kager uh, over over the long term. Uh, we also believe that we can achieve 8 to 10% EBITDA margins. And so we, we have a really bright outlook. We're only limited by the inventory that we have. Uh, there's no, no demand issues at all. Uh, demand is really strong. And so um, by positioning the inventory closer to the customer, we believe we can disrupt an industry where business has really been done the same way for the last 15 now, years. Now, are, are you talking about the parts industry or the electric car um, industry? Because I know you're starting an EV um, uh, uh, plug-in hybrid hub as well to sell whole cars, right? Correct. Uh, not to sell whole cars. Uh, you know, we're really focused on uh, selling parts. Um, and so for us, mm. uh, disrupting industry means, you know, selling, selling more parts. 
uh, and going against the likes of AutoZone and Advanced. And so... But for uh, EVs. EV is, yeah. Yeah, well, for EVs as well, uh, 90% of the parts that we sell are powertrain agnostic. And so, you know, the MEV vehicle has the same wheel hubs and shocks and struts and control arms um, and bumper covers and mirrors. So a lot of the parts are really uh, agnostic to the powertrain. And so we're just focused on solving the customer problem and getting them back on the road. Uh, Lev, talk to us about the competitive position here. You mentioned a couple of your competitors. Where, where does carparts.com stand in terms of market share in this business and kind of what are your, your goals and aspirations? Yeah, so this is a really large industry, um, $300 billion. Um, we're a tiny company with only half a billion in revenue. And so, you know, we think that by getting closer to the customer and we have a unique value proposition in that we get the parts from the factory, we put them in our distribution centers and we'll ship them straight to the customers. So uh, by cutting out all the middlemen, uh, we're able to pass on a lot of the savings to the customers. So most of our parts are you know, 50 to 70% cheaper than you would buy them uh, at your local uh, Advance or AutoZone store. And so that's how we believe we can win, by passing on a lot of the savings to the consumer and cutting out all the middlemen. Are you, uh, do you think that your customers are going to increase in number due to the pandemic in any way? I mean, the idea that people won't want to ride the subway anymore or buses, they're going to want to buy cars and, and maybe the used car market is a huge part of that. Is that part of your plan? That is correct. So a few tailwinds here. Uh, one is that, you know, more people will be relying on personal mobility. Uh, there's going to be more used cars on the road. Um, additionally, it's not good for cars to be parked for a while, then driven, then parked for a while, then driven again. A lot of the rubber gaskets and things like that break down. Uh, people have been delaying some of the maintenance because they haven't been driving as much. Um, so all of these are tailwinds because eventually, you know, cars start breaking down. And uh, there are a lot of cars on the road today, about 287 million in the U.S. Um, and the average age of the vehicle is about 12 years. So a lot of old cars on the road is great for us. By the way, you used to be at Adorama, which if people don't know the um, uh, the AV space and cameras, it's huge. So it, it, what are you bringing from Adorama to car parts? I think it's just a, a relentless focus on, on the customer. And, uh, you know, electronics is a tough space to be in uh, because margins are so low. And so you have to find uh, a way to differentiate yourself. Uh, from all the other competitors, you know, Best Buy, Amazon, uh, you have some, some big guys in the electronic space. And so mm. at Adorama, we did that by focusing on the customer and solving mm. a customer, uh, customer problem. That's what we're doing here as well. All right, Lev, great talking to you. Lev Peeker there, um, coming to us from carparts.com. Uh, and w what an interesting story. The stock has jumped uh, more yeah. than, I guess, tenfold over the last year. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.